0: Section 4 of How the Codex Was Found by Margaret Dunlop Gibson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 4. 4. Next morning, February 2nd, we had a long ride along the seashore, and at one time had to dismount and cross a ridge of limestone rocks where the camels could barely find a footing. The white cliffs were very fantastic and across the blue waters is the fine mountain outline of the African shore. At noon we turned up the Wadi Shalal and lunched beneath a cliff. In the afternoon we passed several Arab caravans, the leaders of which greeted our guides, all being of the same tribe, with great effusion. They would first call out, "Salam," touching their foreheads and breasts. Then approaching, they took each other's hands, and laying their cheeks together made a sound like kissing, but without their lips actually touching. They then said, Ramat Allahai wa ma'ak. The mercy of God and his blessing be with you. The cliffs became very fantastic. They were composed of a black rock with red sandstone, surmounted by pink granite peaks. The sand was of a pink color, and pink granite boulders were strewn about. At half-past four we found our tent pitched in Wadi Badura. This was in consequence of my having scolded Hana in the morning about his making us hasten on so fast. There was light enough left for me to photograph the camp. We started at a quarter past seven next morning, and walked an hour over a rocky ridge, then rode through defiles betwixt hills of pink granite, seamed with trap rocks and sandstone. At half past eleven we stopped in Wadi Makatub and photographed inscriptions. These have been already published and deciphered by Professor Uting. They are in an ancient Semitic character, and are chiefly greetings to departed friends, having apparently no historical value. We started at a quarter past two, and rode betwixt bare, craggy, granite mountains into Wadi Faron, with the lofty peak of Jebel Serbal towering before us. We passed a flock of goats, the first animals we had met since leaving Suez, and observed a wide variety of light-colored stones embedded in the ground, probably brought down by the winter rains. My camel ate of a little dry heath, which grows in tufts, but he preferred a thorn with fearful nail-like spikes, and did not disdain wood. We reached our camp in Wadi Faron after the moon and stars were out, and our camels showed they could walk quickly if they liked. Next morning, we walked for half an hour till our camels overtook us, and stopped to photograph Hasi al-Chattatin, a huge fallen boulder, which Arab tradition declares to have been the first rock struck by Moses. It is supposed that the Amalekites had stopped up the rills from springs in the beautiful oasis higher up the valley, so the people murmured when they saw that they could not get water without fighting for it. At eleven o'clock we reached the little oasis of El Haswe, and were pleased to see palm trees surrounded by gardens, well and carefully tended. The wadi then became overgrown with the torf shrubs, from which a yellow gum exudes. Some supposed that this was the manna but the quantity that can be furnished is infinitesimal compared to what would be required by the thousands of Israel. A little rill trickled along the sand, so we stopped beside it for lunch. A girl, closely veiled, but with lively black eyes, came to see us. She was acquainted with our escort, and her husband was one of those whom we had met in Wadi Teeb. Her first exclamation was, "Ma Fish Harim! Are these not women?' She could not grasp the idea of our going about with uncovered faces. She did not know her own age, but Augie suggested twenty-five. She had been three years married, and had two children. I showed her my dear husband's portrait, and also coloured pictures of Cambridge colleges, but the green turf was quite beyond her comprehension. She was much pleased at being photographed. Her clothes were very dirty, but she wore magnificent bracelets of coral and amber. We also photographed a hill, which commands an extensive view on both sides, just where there is a bend in the longest of wadis. Here it is supposed that Moses viewed the battle with the Amalekites for access to their springs, whilst Aaron and Hur held up his hands. The mountain sides are full of caves and niches, once the homes of Anchorites. Soon a gorgeous sight burst on our view, and the great oasis of Phaeran, a forest of magnificent palm trees in a narrow wadi, overlooked by the lofty granite peaks of Jebel Serbal, which rise sheer from one side of it. It seemed at once as if we were transported to some luxuriant spot in the heart of Africa. It is identified with the Peron or Refidim of Exodus. For four miles we rode amongst those trees, all enclosed and tended. We spoke with several people, and observed a little cemetery right amongst the gardens. Graves here were marked simply by a small headstone and a footstone, just picked off the hillside, with no name or inscription, and perhaps a wisp of straw, which may be nibbled by any passing camel. At one place we had to dismount because torf-trees, growing under the palms, would not allow of our passage. These trees gradually became less thick, till we were again upon barren sand, and we passed through a narrow way betwixt steep, rugged rocks into the little wadi where our tents awaited us. Next morning we started at seven o'clock, and plucked the first flower we had seen since leaving Ain Musa. We were photographing two Nowamis or prehistoric houses, curious huts of unhewn stone, built without mortar, and crowned with a roof like a beehive, when we saw a distant funeral procession of Bedouin. It reached a little cemetery, and the body was laid in the ground before we could get our camera adjusted, but Aage told us that not a single prayer was offered on such occasions, and that the business would be finished when they had found stones suitable for putting up. The Tawara Arabs do not go through any ostentatious devotions like the other Mohammedans, but they have a formula which they repeat to themselves daily. It is in their salutations to each other that the Creator's name is chiefly remembered. Hana said that a Bedouin woman does not wish her husband to get rich, and that she will actually try little tricks to prevent his earning too much money, the reason being that she fears being supplanted in his affections. In the afternoon we turned into Wadi Jene, where we saw a rabbit. Our tents were pitched at the foot of the Nugb Hawa, and there to our great delight we met Mr. Grote, an Anglo-German missionary to the Bedouin, who had been spending the three months of winter in the convent, and had made good use of the time in exploring its Greek library. He had no tent, but slept on an air-bed just on the sand, and ate with his Bedouin escort. He reported that most of the Tawara are simply starving and very thankful for the doles of bread they get from the convent. He had been trying to persuade the archbishop to open a school for their children, and had done them a real service by getting the Egyptian government to release them from a very unnecessary quarantine. Note, this quarantine, unfortunately, is now reimposed. End of note. No epidemic could well travel from Syria over these barren sands. Next day we climbed the pass of Nugb Hawa on foot, followed by our dromedaries. Soon the peak of Ras Safsafhe burst on our view, and we stood on the great plain of Er Raha, just before the mountains which burned with fire, where the voice of God was heard in thunder by the multitude beneath. At length the convent appeared in view, nestling in a narrow valley, surrounded by a walled garden, and overlooked on the one hand by the cliffs of Jebel Musa, and on the other by a mountain named after two Greek saints, Galactean and Episteme. The convent is a medley of buildings belonging to every epoch since its foundation by Justinian in the fifth century. Strongly built, low-roofed, vaulted passages lead into a courtyard, where modern rooms of mud and plaster open onto wooden galleries. The gradual degeneracy of the occupants might almost be traced in their style of building, run up to suit temporary wants. The outer wall, built as that of a fortress, is the most ancient and imposing. Whilst our tents were being pitched beside a well of delicious water, amidst the cypresses, olives, and flowering almond trees of the garden, we were received by the Wegumenos, or prior, and by Galactaeon the Librarian, whose eyes sparkled with sincere pleasure when he read our letter to himself from Mr. Rendell Harris. The world is not so large after all, he exclaimed, when we can have real friends in such distant lands. We had a peep at the outer library, where some of the Greek books are kept, and then attended the afternoon service in the church. It lasted for two hours— There was some very fine singing, but far too many repetitions of Hagios Oteos and Kyrie Eleison. It was the last of their services we attended. They chant the liturgy of their church no less than eight times in the twenty four hours, each monk being required to assist at least twice during the day and twice at night. End of section four. Recording by Hannah Mary.